Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Bhatia. Today, we welcome Benobi. Benobi is a Bitcoin researcher, and we are excited to have him on today to discuss Satoshi Nakamoto. Benobi, thank you for joining us. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for having me today, and I'm excited to uh, to discuss these latest uh, emails that came out. Okay, so yeah. let's start at the high level. Explain to the viewers here why do we have brand new information on Satoshi Nakamoto? What are the circumstances, legally speaking, that brought us here? Right. So, so basically, what's happening right now is that there's a court case uh, between an organization called COPA, which is fighting to keep Bitcoin open source. And this guy, Craig Wright, who's known as Fake Toshi, who claims to be Satoshi Nakamoto, but a lot of things don't line up. And, uh, and so these emails were submitted evidence in this case. Now, Craig Wright's trying to uh, assert a copyright over Bitcoin. And he's in the past, he's tried to get Bitcoin.org, for example, to take down the Bitcoin white paper PDF. Um, so... So this is about protecting open source software. And because of that, the people who were early contributors who communicate with Satoshi uh, have been submitting their emails as evidence in this case, and then also making it available to the public. Get up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free when you sign up with River at river.com slash TBL. River is our Bitcoin exchange of choice, and we love River for two main reasons. Number one, they're Bitcoin only. That means there's no confusion when you go there. And number two, this is really important. River does not use a third-party custodian for Bitcoin storage. That means when you buy Bitcoin with River, that Bitcoin is being held in a multi-signature storage solution by River itself, not by any custodian that might default or lose your coins. Check them out today at river.com slash TBL for that special offer. Excellent. And so we've seen uh, various uh, people that have communicated with Satoshi in the past disclose or put the, post those emails online, one of them being a Mr. Malmi. So can you talk about this character, explain, uh, give us a little bit of back history this is one of the first people in the world to actually work on Bitcoin. Yeah, definitely. Um, this guy, Marty Malmi, he was a student in Finland um, studying computer science. And he was on the anti-state forum where Stoshi was posting about his idea. And one of the many places he posted. And uh, he went by the username Trickstern there. And he messaged Satoshi and was like, hey, you know, I'm in school. Like, I'd love to be able to help out with Bitcoin any way I can. And so it was kind of one of the first people to reach out and offer, I think, to help and, and to do it as a volunteerist, right? There was no uh, idea of getting paid. He just thought it was a cool idea. And he thought, well, I'd like to help out with this cool idea any way I can. Okay, so this is slide five here. Um, we have the original yeah. email that was sent to Satoshi Nakamoto. Now, what the first request that Satoshi gave Marty was this uh, request for frequently asked question documentation. So give us your, your impression yeah. of what, what was happening. Yeah. There. So this is the part that really, uh, the initial thing that shocked me when I read these emails is right away in this first email, he's like, 
Can you like create an FAQ? I'll just send you the answers and questions, but I just need someone to copy and paste these onto the website, right? So, so it kind of says to me that Stoshi was working alone. And that and that's because to think that there was a group of people where someone couldn't find a few minutes to copy and paste uh, some questions and answers and format them into a SourceForge page. I mean, it's like, uh, it's a pretty easy task for someone to do. And so it says to me that Stoshi was completely overwhelmed with potentially a job and also building Bitcoin at the same time. Now, uh, I know that we have a lot more emails uh, to go to go through, but give us the sense of why you think this is important that Satoshi appeared as if he was working alone relative to maybe some of the previous assumptions that this project of Bitcoin possibly had been pieced together or had been created by a group of cryptographers or computer scientists. Right. Well, I don't know if it's important to Bitcoin itself, but I think it's fascinating to to discuss and to think about. And I know it's been a it's been a debate for many years. And and part of the debate actually goes back to Craig Wright because many people believe that Craig Wright is part of that group. All right. Um, and so the validity of Craig Wright's claims, uh, which revolve around uh, another guy named David Kleinman being part of that group as well. Um, kind of make it sound like Bitcoin was a collaborative effort. There were many people working on it. There was a coder. There was someone doing messaging. You know, uh, there was kind of like a front man for it who was who was on the message boards and writing emails. And there was someone else coding, or maybe a couple people coding. And there's different variations of what theories exist, and the theories will still exist, but they just seem to me to be wrong now. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, and I think that is it's also important to note here that we aren't necessarily trying to discover the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto so so that we get a better understanding of Bitcoin today as an asset and how it can impact the future for economics, finance, and humanity. That's not really what we're doing here at all. We are simply students of Bitcoin that are fascinated by the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, the story of the creation of this protocol, how it came to be, and what is really, as we go forth, one of the greatest mysteries of all time. And uh, yeah. that's really what the angle that we're coming from. So um, let's go into the next slide, Ben. Bitcoin's core value proposition here. Yeah. So in the third email, you know, it's kind of, this is still, this is regurgitations of stuff we've seen elsewhere, but just a great reminder that before Bitcoin, there was no way to transfer money without a third party online. Like you could transfer money hand to hand from someone to someone else in physical space, but you could send someone a picture of a banana, but you couldn't send them a dollar. Right. And that's still the core value prop of Bitcoin. And I think what Stoshi touches on here is something, a good reminder, which is that Utility does not mean value. Value kind of comes from somewhere else and utility is the spark, right? So um, so it's interesting because, uh, you know, it's, it's really the value, according to Stoshi, comes from scarcity, right? And which which I kind of go into a little bit later in here, but that, that 21 million limit on Bitcoin was actually added later. So Satoshi wrote the code, then he wrote the white paper, then he sent the white paper out. And on the crypto cryptography mailing list, 
these guys were like, uh, yeah, but you have inflation, man. That's not going to work. And so he was like, okay, yeah, I guess we'll need to have a maximum supply of coins and have fees implemented. So when the coins run out, there will be fees. And that's kind of a change that happened to Bitcoin from his initial thinking. And he came up with 21 million as a educated guess is what he says, right? Yes. So, and I, when I think about this and the, and the finite supply as being something that is absolutely critical to Bitcoin's game theory working, it is hard for me to imagine that the supply cap was an afterthought or something that came into play later. Rather, maybe the quantity or the way to do it or the timing to release that information was potentially delayed or slow played. I'm not sure, but I just want to inject that in here that I, I mean, it's such an, it's such an integral part of the way that Bitcoin's game theory works, this whole supply schedule and havings that we'll see from Satoshi's own words, what he was thinking at the time, but I, I yeah. still do believe that there was an understanding of the necessity of this supply limit, at least to some extent. So, um, but we'll we'll get there, Ben. I promise. So this next okay, one, we'll get down there. Yeah. Well, I think I think what you're kind of touching on is that there was iterations happening. Bitcoin was absolutely a lot like a startup, and that's one of my main takeaways from this email is that there was a startup-like environment. You know, so him and Marty are going back and forth in these emails, and they're saying, "Hey, we need an app to bootstrap this thing," or "What features are going to get us daily active users?" How about an auto run where it will go into the system tray like this was the stuff that was important to them and they spent a ton of time going back and forth about how to manage their website like uh which which content management systems should we use should we use drupal or wordpress or i'm having trouble installing this theme and logging in like it's just it's pretty amazing but marty was like taking care of all of that stuff so stoshi could really focus on code um and so um but yeah, just it, it feels like a startup. It was like a very exciting time, but they weren't sure if it was going to work or not. And they were, uh, you know, kind of coming up with these ideas on the fly on these emails. It really does feel like. Yeah. And Ben, right? can you explain to us what this auto run uh, email is about? Yeah. We want Satoshi wants to find a way to bootstrap the network, figure out a way to get people using Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a protocol. But it needs something else, right? We have wallets now. We have exchanges. We have all these companies that use Bitcoin. So what was this about? Well, there's two ideas here. So one idea is that they were looking for something to bootstrap, which, which is sort of like, we need an app that can give an example of how Bitcoin can be used. And they had this idea for doing an exchange. It was actually Marty's idea to set up an exchange where you could trade Bitcoin for euros or any fiat money. Okay. Uh, Cause I would actually give it more of a real world value. And, um, and then Marty also had an idea of doing an auto start, which means when windows loads on, cause it was built for windows first, okay? it wasn't built for Linux or Mac. It was built to run on windows XP Vista or whatever. Right. <laughs> and so um, when windows loads, there's certain programs that load with windows. And if you have that, then you're more likely to have those programs running because people forget about them, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so they wanted to build this feature into Bitcoin. So when you run Bitcoin, it would minimize 
be hidden from your view and then also be in the startup. So every time you start your computer, Bitcoin would run. And that would be a way to get more daily active users to keep more nodes online. And that's really the way I would think about it. It's like, should we build Linux? Well, no, probably not. That would only give us like maybe 3% more users, but Windows Auto Start would give us 300%. But, you know, in today's world, Nick, like 99% of Bitcoin nodes run on Linux. So, you know, you just don't know what's going to work. And they didn't know what was going to work. And I find then. I find this really, this part of it really fascinating, this whole startup vibe that you are suggesting. It's not even that you're suggesting. You're just reading the emails and really saying, hey, these guys are building something from scratch. So let me ask you something away from the emails between these two people. What about all the other people on the cryptography mailing list in the early years? Let's call it the first year that were interested in Bitcoin that okay, we know about Hal Finney. We also know that Hal wasn't at his maximum health. We know we know that so but we know that hal was a staunch supporter of bitcoin from the get-go that was done on a public forum and we also have seen emails okay. as well uh tell us about how you interpret these two working without a bunch of other people rushing to get in to get involved to express their opinion on how these things should be done what is it what does it tell you about some of the older theories about who Satoshi could have been. Um, I'm curious your thoughts here. Well, you know, I think one thing to, one thing to kind of keep in mind here is that these guys on the forums, like they've heard all these ideas already. Like they're kind of like, Oh, another idea for a currency. Um, we've done this before, man. And here's why yours won't work. So most of his responses are like, this is why your idea won't work. Okay. Satoshi, thanks for trying. And these guys maybe didn't even read the whole paper. They're just reading his post or something, some of them, you know? And he's coming back to them and he's answering them with like, well, let me actually explain this in a different way. Like his level of confidence in his responses is pretty impressive on those forum posts. You can you can find them on the, on the crypto uh, forum, you know? So I don't think these guys were rushing in to run nodes. In fact, the people who were rushing to run nodes were like, this Liberty Reserve guy ended up becoming one of their top most active users because... He had, he had a sort of stable coin, like an early tether. And he was very interested in Bitcoin because of its, because uh, it was not centralized, right? So uh, all the other kind of digital currencies were, were very centralized. And Satoshi was looking at this stuff and he's like, hmm, LimeWire, Nutella, that survived. Napster died. So what was the difference? Well, the difference was that like BitTorrent and this kind of decentralized peer-to-peer -peer network, that was difficult to defeat. Whereas Napster was an entity that the government would go knock on their door and be like, you're done, shut your doors, right? Ben, so, ben I wanna get your thoughts on that note. Uh, the Satoshi is a cypherpunk versus Satoshi is intelligence. For people that might not be aware, why do some people or factions think that Satoshi is an intelligence product is, does any of that have merit? Because I always find, find this idea fascinating. It probably stems from the fact that cryptography initially was a field reserved for the NSA. Yeah. Um, outside, and, outside, and, that, and that Bitcoin itself uses SHA-256, which is an NSA product. But can you speak to that whole intelligence side? 
you know, um, someone very wise once told me that, um, you know, that, that all, all failures, like our, our successes have multiple parents, but, but, uh, that failures have none. <laughs> like everyone wants to take credit when something's working. Right. And, um, and so I feel like now that Bitcoin has become like as successful as it has, uh, you know, everyone's looking to jump on the train and try to take some credit for it. Maybe even the intelligence agency has been trying to make people think that they somehow created it. So, so I don't know. I think Satoshi, could he be a government agent? He could be, honestly. Could he have been a government contract or something? Sure. Could it have been a NSA think tank? We don't really know, honestly. We probably will never really know. But when I read these posts on the forum, like Satoshi's basically saying like, you guys, this will actually give us an edge against the government. You know, like this is us kind of poking them in the eye once because they're going to have a hard time stopping this thing. And I just, don't, I just don't see a government agent writing those kinds of things, even if they were trying to play into the, you know, sort of, I don't know, to win trust from these cryptographers or something. It, like it was a very different age for cryptography where cryptography was, uh, you know, in some, in some decades considered a weapon where you couldn't even uh, export it. And I know that, Shamir, a famous cryptographer from RSA, like was blocked entry to the US just last year or something. So like there's still a war where cryptography is, you know, is uh, is dangerous to governments because it, it prevents them from kind of seeing into everything. Right. Yes. Ben is so, um, Ben is referring to yeah. um, the the era in w during which cryptography was considered munitions and therefore uploading the code of a cryptographic algorithm or some sort of software could be considered exporting munitions and therefore uh, a, a war crime of sorts. And so, and, and, and that whole premise had to be broken down through the court system. And it took many years to do that, to finally get yeah. cryptography safely into the hands of the private sector uh, away from the NSA. So, Ben, let's keep going here. This email, 151, Bitcoin will be easy to get and to cash out for small amounts. What what do you take away from this email here? Yeah, so so that is my takeaway. My, you know, basically what I'm doing here, Nick, is I, I've taken a little bit of liberty in summarizing these things in my own words, right? Each of these emails. And like, this is the way I understand what Stoshi's saying here. It's like digital payments uh, are important for people to be able to get small amounts very easily and then cash out easily because most of the things you want to pay for are like um, some kind of IP for something you're using, like a license or some kind of server or a domain. And you don't want to pay for this using your credit card, which ties the identity, your identity to whatever it is that you're purchasing. Right. And so uh, he's basically saying like, well, for Bitcoin to be successful, Bitcoin's going to be the only thing that really works this way. You're able to buy a small amount and, and sell a small amount, right? And uh, to a degree, that's still not the case today, honestly. Like he was kind of wrong about this idea. Like it's not super easy to buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin or $10 worth of Bitcoin, right? Because the fees are, are are kind of high to do that. Um, and the peer-to-peer -peer exchanges where, where maybe you could do that have been mostly shut down. So uh, this is a way, this is an, as, an aspect that, that Bitcoin did not live up to Satoshi's expectations, right? Yeah, and we, we, we know that there's a lot of debate, continues to be a lot of debate about how Satoshi envisioned Bitcoin to scale, um, which 
is is funny to me because it doesn't matter. What matters is how the market wants to scale and how the users want to scale, and the developers respond to the developers experiment. But in the end, they respond to the best way forward for the network to scale, not because somebody said so. Um, this next slide here, some of your conclusions that Satoshi did not want to be the front man, but he encouraged Marty to use his real name and address, asked him to open a bank account and use his credit cards for servers. Tell us about that. What are your thoughts here about Satoshi? It's sort of like this, Nick. Nick, I have this, I have this little project um, that I'm running, right? And I'd like you to, uh, to use your real name. It's very important that you use your real name here, Nick, because that would give it a lot of legitimacy. And also, even though you're just a college student. And uh, also, would you give me your address, please, so we can have some cash sent to you? And would you put all the servers and everything in your name and use your credit card? Is that cool? Okay, perfect. Because right? I'm very busy. And also, can you take these interviews? Like, that's kind of the vibe of what I'm reading in these emails. And, you know, it starts off with Satoshi sort of introducing this concept in, in email 19, right? Let's go to that slide and take a look at it. Okay. So email 19, uh, slide number 14. <laughs> he says, it's a dangerous thing to say. Dangerous thing for me to say, but you can say it. So he's sort of like, there's a lot of things that you can post and talk about that I can't as Satoshi, but, but you, Marty Malmi, have the freedom to do that. Now, I don't know if he was thinking... Maybe this is a student in Finland. He doesn't live in the police state that that whatever I live in, you know. Uh, so whether it was London or Canada or the U.S. or somewhere else that he didn't feel safe um, being the person, you know, saying these things or, or putting his name on this stuff. Um, but it's very clear that uh, that this delineation existed from the beginning. As Toshi viewed Marty as someone who had more liberty to, to and encouraged him to say more and to put his put himself out there as his own as his real persona uh, in the face of this, and it's it's sort of the idea that like okay, look, you know, and maybe it's not a cover story. Maybe it really is to to build legitimacy, but but it really feels to me like sort of a cover up, uh, a core, you know, creating creating this persona of these Bitcoin developers that are building this thing that's a decentralized project uh, was very important to Satoshi, probably for good reason, um, you know, but this, uh, the next thing is the email 83. He's like, you know, there it is right there. He's like, uh, you know, I think most projects use real names for consistency. So I'm going to do this feature list of all of the features in this Bitcoin release version 0.2. And I'd like to list your name there. It's okay to use your real name, right? Like he's encouraging him to use his real name. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto is using Satoshi Nakamoto, which obviously is not his real name. Uh, so. Ben, can you uh, talk really quickly? I know that you have it here. Um, let's actually go to that slide here at the end for viewers about the time zone, the type of English spelling that was used was Satoshi an American, a Canadian, a Brit, an Aussie? What are your thoughts? And walk us through uh, these three slides here. Okay, so let's first look at the Satoshi email timestamp. So 
So the way that this works is that when an email is sent, the computer that's sending the email has a system time that's based on a time zone. Like when you're traveling, your time will update, you know, on your computer or you update it manually if you don't have those kind of settings set to automatically do that. And the same thing on your phone. Like, so your device kind of sets the time. So Satoshi's device was set to look like he was in the UK. That lines up completely perfectly between GMT and BST, the, the British summer time. So in the summer, he's plus one. And the rest of the year, he's at zero GMT, right? So he's really trying to look like I'm somewhere in this time zone. And there's 98 emails with the GMT and there's 54 with the, with the BST in here. Um, so now if we take those times of all these emails and we put it onto all the other activity that we have of Satoshi's and adjust it for all the, to be in the right, uh, to, we look at it on a global time, right? What we get is it lines up exactly with this PST daytime, which is Pacific time. And so we look at this chart here, this is by Jameson Lopp, who's, who's, uh, who's been working on this stuff for many years, kind of debunking uh, Satoshi theories. Jameson's compiled this list here and he added in on top is the green parts are the emails and the yellow parts are all the stuff that we have from Satoshi before. And what you can see here is that it's basically 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Pacific time. If it was London, then Satoshi would be working from sort of 3 p.m. until 7 a.m. for those two years. Is it possible? It is. But like one of them seems way more likely than the other, right? So this is evidence that Satoshi was creating a complex story around the identity, right? Um, by making sure that these emails would would throw off anyone who's on who's on his scent by having weird timestamps that probably didn't correspond to where he actually was. And I would say the same thing with the spellings, right? So I think what we're seeing in these emails is very interesting because a lot of people on, on Twitter really enjoyed the fact that he said retarded. And to me, you know, these kind of things are more American. Retarded. Oh, crap. Oh, great. Now we're screwed. The calling someone a goofball. Like, I, I don't think that translates very well to, to British English or, or Commonwealth, even Australian. Uh, so then at the same time, he's using spellings that are Commonwealth spellings, like check with a Q and color and favor using O-U-R, right? Uh, so... He's trying to weave a complexity here to make it very difficult. As far as I can tell, it's it's very hard to say. But to me, those colloquialisms like "oh crap" and you know "now we're screwed." I don't know. That's that's more difficult to fake. Whereas if you have spellings of a few words, then then uh, that's easier to to kind of throw in there as like a screwball, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So let's go to the next, um, the next email about the interview. So Satoshi wanting Marty to do, do an interview externally. Yeah. So Satoshi's writing him and they've been working together for a while now. Um, uh, for almost a year, I think, cause I think the first, it began in May, right? So this is March 2010, and they're very they're very informal, you know. And so Stosh is like, "Hey, I don't really have time for this. Some blogger wants to like do an interview. Would you mind taking it?" And of course, Marty's like, "Sure." But it does sort of have that that feeling of like Satoshi putting 
Marty out there again. You know, he's really looking for a front man. And even though he'd exchanged emails with Mike Hearn and other, other early Bitcoin developers, like Mike was working for Google and also living in the States. That probably wasn't a very good candidate. But this student in Finland, that's a pretty good candidate, I think, to, to be putting himself out there. And he also he understood Bitcoin really well, Marty. Right? He was really helping with the development and the porting to Linux and everything. And then immediately after that, he's like, Satoshi goes missing and Marty's looking for him on the emails. You know, he's like, "Where? hey, man, I haven't seen you online in a while. Just letting you know that, like, uh, we've been doing a bunch of stuff and the community's growing. And, you know, like he's he's checking in with them to be like, hey, everything's going well. Are you uh, are you coming back? And he's been missing for like a month at this point. So like Satoshi's like, go do this interview. And then he pieces out for a month. Right. And what do you think about what, then, what do you think about that that period? Was it Satoshi saying, "Let's see this take off without me," or yeah. is that what you yeah. think was going I think on? So. I think it's like an initial test. Like, all right, let's. Or maybe he got distracted with, with just life, but it seems more to me that's like, let's kind of see what happens this month. See if I can step away as a trial, um, and not do anything. This guy's doing interviews and let's see what the outcome of that interview is too and see where that goes. And, you know, and Satoshi's reply after this is very interesting because he's kind of like the next uh, slide's 19. Yep. He's like, um, I haven't downloaded my emails since like the beginning of April. So I was, when I read that, I was like, well, who downloads their emails anyway? Like what, what is going on here? He's only turning on this computer sometimes, what that says to me. This is not an everyday computer that he's using. This is something that he's using only part of the time to keep his life completely separate from this Bitcoin idea. Right. And he's downloading his emails on that computer when he turns it on, doing some work on Bitcoin, closing that, putting it away. Right. And so that's what this email really says to me. This is my interpretation. I could be wrong, of course, but this really feels like Satoshi has his life and he has Bitcoin separate for a reason. Uh, we don't know what that reason is, but it was very important to him to... He went to very great levels to to protect his privacy, right? And, and well, let me ask you real quick before we go into this next uh, email, one hundred and ninety three. We know um, we know that Bitcoin transactions can be tracked by forensic analysis by the FBI, for example. They do that by using a combination of IP addresses and other forensic sort of tools. Now we know, so we know that basically we know that this is possible to do, but explain to us why we don't know anything about yeah. Satoshi's IP addresses or things along that line. And Ben, you can speak to me like um, I'm a total novice here in terms okay. of, uh, in terms of this topic. Yeah. Okay. So, so first, like an IP address is like a street address on the street, but it's an address on the internet that points to your location. And these IP addresses are given out by the providers of internet to each physical location. So those providers know where each IP address routes to. And so when we access a website or send an email, our IPs are kind of logged in these systems and and can be used to trace back to where we are same thing if you send a bitcoin transaction whatever node you submit your transaction to will keep a record 
this IP address signed this transaction. Right now, it's not public on the chain, but those nodes do contain those information in logs on their systems. Right. So if the government's running Bitcoin nodes or has access to the logs of other Bitcoin nodes that are running or exchanges or whatever, then they're able to get that information. But in the case where someone runs their own node, that information, the IP address is only recorded onto that node. And so Satoshi was 100% running his own node in the early days of Bitcoin. And he was submitting transactions to his local node. So, so his IP address might have been known to Marty when he syncs up to Satoshi's node, but Satoshi also could have run a VPN. And what a VPN would do is it would hide, it would obscure the address. So it would take all of his, all of his data and route it through another server somewhere else or multiple to sort of obscure where he's coming from. And there's actually evidence that Satoshi did use VPNs and he used some VPNs and proxies in Russia even. Um, so, so Satoshi put in a lot of effort, I think, to keep his VPN, to keep his IP address concealed. But today, if you're, if you just download a Bitcoin wallet and you don't run your own Bitcoin node and you submit transactions, well, likely someone is, someone somewhere knows where you are. Just like, an, just like if you run an app on your phone, there's geolocation. It works just like that. And can you talk a little bit more about Satoshi's VPN usage? What are, what do we know about Satoshi's VPN usage? We don't know a whole lot, honestly, because to really gather that kind of information, we'd have to have access to things like the SourceForge logs and at, and the servers that he accessed on all the and the email headers. So, one thing about these Malmi emails, important to understand, is that these are these are sort of like screenshots of emails that he's sharing. We don't have the raw code of the email. It's called the email header. And even if we did have the email header, knowing that it wasn't manipulated by Malmi or someone else along the way impossible to know because it's not recorded on the blockchain, right? This was not recorded on Bitcoin. So we don't really know if it's been altered or not. So just like we don't know if the timestamps have been altered in here, if the content of these emails have been altered in any way. And we don't know much about Satoshi's IPs or VPN usage, honestly. There's there's some, uh, some things I've seen about this Russian VPN choice, which kind of came out in the investigations of trying to identify who Satoshi could be uh, related to the founder of Chainlink, you know, who's Russian, um, because some people thought that, that it could be him. But we, we don't know a ton about Satoshi's IP addresses or VPN usage. We just, we just don't know. We'll never know uh, because all of the posting and stuff that he did during that time, it's, it's so long ago now that those logs are not readable. Right. And even the email headers that are going to these people might not even be that useful because they could contain, they could be running on VPNs. It'd be very hard to know now if that IP address then was on a VPN, whereas now we have a lot of tracking on uh, popular VPNs that are being used, for example. Sure. So, okay, Ben, this yeah. next one is really fascinating. Uh, Satoshi emails Marty. By the way, it's looking like I may be able to get us some money soon to cover web host costs, back your exchange service, etc., in the form of cash in the mail. 
Can you receive it and act as the project's treasurer? What happened here uh, after this email? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, first of all, I just want to say that, like, if some anonymous person online asked me to be their treasurer for their project, I'd probably say no. Okay, <laughs> I would probably say no to that. But but Marty was was being super helpful, being a really good sport about it, and and agreed to have cash sent in the mail. So the next thing that happens is Satoshi says, "Hey, can I have your address? Because this guy will only send cash. He wants to remain completely anonymous." And so I'll need your physical address to send you U.S. dollars in Europe. So, so, and I also, I need you to keep the information of where the return address, if there's any information on the envelope, I need you to keep that super private because this guy does not want to be associated with publicly with any sort of support. All right. So now I think what's happening here is that Malmi's like paying for some of these server costs himself. And Satoshi... I don't know, maybe it feels bad or maybe he's worried that he's not staying motivated enough to continue doing that or that it could get shut down. So uh, so he's finding a way to send him some money. Maybe even Satoshi's sending that money himself. We don't know, right? We have no idea uh, where that money came from, but we know that he receives $3,500. He thinks it's $3,600 at first, but it ends up being $3,500 in cash, in hundreds, in the mail. So physical cash comes in the mail. And I just find it to be... Really funny that that the initial funding of Bitcoin was this small amount of money. It was not a lot of money. So it shows also that like the people involved this stage did not have a lot of resources, right? I mean, Mommy was a college student. Satoshi probably did not have a ton of resources at his disposal. This is not a lot of money. And, um, and but they treat it like a very big deal. You know, Satoshi's like afterwards, he's like, Email me a little accounting statement after everything you spend. And that'll be how we kind of keep track of this. Unbelievable. And forgive my ignorance, Ben. Is this new information that th this cash email or did we know was this uh, in the As far as I know, this is completely new. Like this idea of sending cash to the mail to get some early funding. I've not seen any other reference to that at all. Or Malmi being the treasurer. Completely new stuff. So it's. It's very interesting and kind of fits into that startup story, right. really, in my mind. Now, right? talk to, pause from the emails for a second. How are you, obviously, I know you are not an attorney, but how are you viewing the deliberations in court right now on this COPA case? How do you see them understanding the matter? How are they, how are they doing as, you know, in this relatively new domain? I know there have been Bitcoin court cases across the world for many years, but each each major one that we get, it there's new opportunity for a court precedent. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, it's always hard to say how things are going to go in court because the last second some evidence could come along that could maybe reverse everything. But from my understanding of what's happening, um, it looks like Craig Wright is getting slaughtered in this court case. Um, you know, it's it's been clear, I think, to to many of us who are who are who are online and following kind of the story of Satoshi that Craig Wright is not Satoshi, but to have it proven in court is going to be the best possible situation because you know uh, Craig Wright uses the law to his advantage all the time to try to cause problems for Bitcoin developers and anyone building 
anything Bitcoin related. So it's now it's being used against him. It's sort of a welcome to law moment. He loves to say welcome to law. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting precedent. We'll see if, if, if the judge is able to really understand all this stuff. It seems like he is following it pretty well. And it seems like the more that Craig Wright talks, the more trouble he gets himself into because really he's been kind of creating all these other frauds along the way, like lying to his lawyers and all this stuff. So, so I think the judge is, is, is able to see kind of that the character he's dealing with is not a, you know, upstanding person. Now, to be fair, to be fair now, what if, what if Craig Wright is somehow is Satoshi and these emails, you know, maybe even partially show some of that. Like what if some of these spellings are, are, you know, actually uh, more Canadian or more Australian like he is. And what if this idea of like kind of tricking mommy into being a front man is more of a Craig Wright style thing. Like I, I don't personally believe that, but I'm sure there's people who are interpreting that way. You know, there's always going to be these questions outstanding. Um, but in terms of the in terms of the legal case, I think it's a very exciting precedent. I'm really excited to see where the case goes and what the what the final outcome is. But it does look like it's it's overwhelmingly clear to everyone that the guy who's trying to remove the Bitcoin PDF from the Bitcoin website isn't the guy who put it there. You know, absolutely. Yeah. OK, so. Email number three, my choice for the number of coins and distribution schedule was an educated guess. It was a difficult choice because once the network is going, it's locked in and we're stuck with it. I wanted to pick something that would make prices similar to existing currencies, but without knowing the future, that's very hard. It's unbelievable to think that he had to think about the units in advance without knowing anything here. So he says it's an educated guess, but in your interpretation, maybe it was something that was an afterthought or something that occurred later to him. So what is your insight here, Ben? Well, we actually know that it wasn't part of the initial proposal because when he first sends Bitcoin out to the to the um, cryptography mailing list, right? Um, these cryptographers are like, this is never going to work, man. You have 35% inflation in here or something like that. You know, like they're kind of nailing on him about this inflation issue. And it made him rethink it. And he says in one of his posts, something like, well, we can actually handle this inflation issue with fees. And he put the fees in at the beginning, even though he thought they were going to be never really be necessary or not necessary for a very long time. Because at that time, Bitcoin blocks had no size limit. Right. So the size limit was added later too. that max block size variable. And um, so, you know, when he was thinking about scaling in the early days, he really wasn't thinking that a, a block size limit would be necessary because of the because of Moore's law and because of the uh, speed of the Internet already being so fast at that time compared to what it was before. Right? Yeah. Uh, ben, let's look at email 24. Just skipping ahead a couple here. An email from Satoshi in July of 2009, so about six months after Bitcoin went live. I'm not going to be much help right now either. Pretty busy with work and need a break from it after 18 months development. So this implies Satoshi started building Bitcoin at the beginning of 2008, yeah. about 10 months before yeah. the white paper 
and 12 months before the first code was sent out. And right. as well as I'm pretty busy with work. So what, yeah. what, do you, what do you take away from this? And again, I just want to remind people here, we're not out to, to try to find out or we're not really trying to speculate the true identity of Satoshi here. This is this really is a fascination. There might be a day, Ben, where that is the topic of the day that, hey, we've been yeah. presented with the evidence enough evidence and and maybe it's time to to make a, a conclusion one way or the other today is not that day and that's not really what yeah. we're trying to do here so what are your thoughts i agree with you. i agree yeah so well i thought this was really interesting because as far as i've seen this is the most concrete evidence of when development began there's some hints of things in his emails with mike hearn where he's talking about oh i would have used this socket from your project at google if if I hadn't already started Bitcoin by that point in time, but like, this is the first time I've seen Stoshi say like, yeah, I started it on this date. That's basically what this email says. This email says I started building Bitcoin in January of 2008. And it, you know, it took me 10 months to get to the point where I could even talk about it. Right. Um, and he also says in here, like, uh, I'm pretty busy with work. Right. So, so some other work that he's doing, maybe it's academic work, maybe he's working a job. You don't know, like it's all speculation, but but I think that that the new information here is very interesting, which is the start date, because we know so little about the about where Bitcoin sort of the development of it, how it came about. And this to me seems like it was one guy working on it for 10 months again. Right? This is another piece of another hint towards I, I really believe this is a one person genius situation where he cracked the code and he wrote the code in 10 months presented to the world, and it was almost perfect from the get-go, right? Absolutely. Um, now, you say Satoshi was a coder. You feel that conclusively. What What is the evidence, and you can be brief here, like what, what did you interpret from the emails that made you feel like this? And again, this is, a, this uh, is, a, this is opposed yeah. to the idea that Satoshi was a group, and that maybe one person was a coder, one person was not, or that Satoshi wasn't that good of a coder because some of his public messages were like that maybe there's some people better that could do this. So what are your interpretations here? Well, um, you know, many people have talked about, about Satoshi's early code being very academic and very messy and not very professional as evidence of, of, uh, of him not working with a group, right? Um, but to me, like, this is really clear when you read these emails, I'm going back and forth with Marty, the tone of the emails never changes. The style never changes, but there's deep technical details, like discussing what type of conditionals to use and which libraries and paths to change stuff to and how they were troubleshooting, getting stuff working and helping early users troubleshoot their, you know, crashes and, just all this in-depth stuff that like a non-technical founder would never be able to do in a startup. Right. So Satoshi's not zero Satoshi's not some game theorist. Satoshi was a coder and we can might have been a game theorist as well, Nick, but like, you know, right. uh, this there's so many emails about the development of Bitcoin in the early days going back and forth with Marty that this could never have been correct. Right. Right. That's that's part of the big takeaway from this too is that it was a single person but also it wasn't Craig who does not have the ability to even understand this stuff. He's already shown. Right. Now, uh, Ben, we could, 
we could go on for hours talking about Satoshi, but I want to close with this last one and get your thoughts here. This is uh, slide 35. It would have been nice to get this attention in any other context. WikiLeaks has kicked the hornet's nest and the swarm is headed toward us. So this is Satoshi in December of 2010. Bitcoin is almost two years old. The swarm is headed toward us. And then shortly thereafter, Satoshi sent his last email, which was on December 12th. So the following day. Well, that was his last post to the forum. So yeah, so I think it's important to understand the context of what was happening at this Please. time. So WikiLeaks was having payment issues with payment processing. So they were using Bitcoin. And there was a news article that came out that basically said like, Bitcoin was created to uh, to help WikiLeaks, you know, circumvent the traditional finance system or something. And it was like leading people in this direction that Satoshi did not like. He was not comfortable with that because he knew what that meant was that the government was going to come knocking on their door next because clearly the government was trying to shut down WikiLeaks. Now the government's going to try to shut down anything that keeps WikiLeaks alive. And so he was reading the writing on the wall. He had concerns about the speed that Bitcoin was growing, the attention that was coming to it. And shortly after that, he sent his last, the next day he sent his last post on the forum, Bitcoin Talk. And then he started just communicating with developers a little bit. Mike Hearn has some emails that go until I think March, but so she's finding email to Marty is in, is, and to a guy named Gavin Andreessen, who kind of did become the front man of Bitcoin actually in a way that Marty couldn't uh, voluntarily. You know, uh, that sort of happened in, in February. And then right after that, in March, a federal investigation into Liberty Reserve gets launched, which was the, one of the first big Bitcoin users. And they had this um, stable coin, kind of like an early tether, which they were looking at using for the Bitcoin exchange as an on and off ramp and the emails here. And so by that time, Stoshi was out. Like he saw the writing on the wall. He saw the hornets swarming and he did not want to be part of that swarm. And at that point, Satoshi took that laptop uh, that you believe was separate from anything else and and uh, probably destroyed any evidence that would trace back. Ben, we appreciate your time so much. There are thousands of questions that we could probably continue to ask and maybe we'll get back together again uh, after the court case is done or anything else comes out and we'll do more Satoshi Nakamoto speculation together. Uh, Benobi, thank you for joining us today at the Bitcoin layer. Tell people where they can find your work. Uh, just follow me on Twitter at Ben Sig. That's the best place or X.com as they call it. And thanks for having me, Nick. Appreciate Excellent. it. Uh, had a good time. Excellent. We'll catch you yeah. guys next time. Talk to you soon. The Bitcoin layer is proud to be sponsored by River. Go check them out at river.com slash TBL for a special offer of up to $100 worth of Bitcoin for free. Now, River is an amazing Bitcoin-only exchange that offers Lightning Network withdrawals and deposits. They offer zero-fee recurring orders and a really cool new feature that allows you to text Bitcoin to your friends and family. Go check them out, river.com slash TBL.